Hey listeners, I'm working on a mailbag episode where I answer your questions. So if you have anything you'd like to ask me, send me an email to sam at kitchentablemagic.org. I'll read all of your questions on air in a future episode. Thanks. Kitchen Table Magic is presented by Hipsters of the Coast. Hipsters of the Coast is the premier news and strategy blog for the Magic the Gathering community. Read up on insightful columns written by an expert team of Magic insiders. There's something for everyone. Discussion about legacy, commander, preview cards from the new set, and more. Just go to hipstersofthecoast.com for news and strategy on all of your favorite formats. That's hipstersofthecoast.com. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. With fast shipping, the best card sleeves, deck boxes, binders, and all the modern legacy and commander staples you could ever want, Card Kingdom is there with the hookup. If you'd like to support the show, just use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com KTM when you shop. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. Tune into their stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames for daily legacy action. Okay, so here's a sound check question. What is your favorite food? I love ramen and, okay, it's, it's really two ethnicities. I like Japanese food and Mexican food. Nice. Yeah, I think uh, no one does pork better than the Mexican restaurants and no one does carbs better than the Japanese. Really? Yeah, I mean, noodles and sushi and all that kind of stuff. Give me that and then tacos uh, and uh, what is it, the al pastor oh, yeah. style. I'm all there. All day for that. <laughs> I love that. And you know, what's funny is that I don't actually think of Japanese foods as like carbs. But now that I think about it, there's a lot of carbs. A lot of carbs. A lot of carbs. Yeah. The nudes. The nudes and the rice. <laughs> I think they have top tier nudes and rice. Um, and soups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you're not eating any of that kind of like the nudes, <laughs> the, the noodles or the rice, yeah. then you're getting a lot of like lean fish, lean meat and like tons of vegetables. That's true. Well, right? I don't really mess with the vegetables so much. I'm also there for the meat <laughs> and the carbs. <laughs> I didn't know they had vegetables in Japan. This is news to me. <laughs> well, if they're there, they're really small. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like gotcha. tiny little bits of green. <laughs> Accoutrement. Yeah. Right. It's like a corn flour. Okay. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to the master of legacy elves, Daniel Wen. Daniel is a Seattle Legacy player who dedicated himself to testing and grinding tournaments. Daniel's experience and long history with the game led him to create a primer on Legacy Elves, which has been standard reading for Magic players around the world. Daniel talks with me about growing up playing Magic as a kid and what he's doing now to help preserve Legacy in today's Magic community. I caught up with Daniel in the summer of 2017. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Daniel Wen. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. And today, I'm here with Daniel Nguyen, the master of Legacy Elves. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. That's uh, quite an introduction. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for having me over. And, you know, for the listeners, this is very special because where are we right now? We are in my kitchen on the kitchen table. That's right. Yep. That's right. You can hear that. It's very special to be here. And thank you so much for having me over. Of course. You're very welcome uh, to be uh, doing all this. It seems like a whole operation, so happy to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah, it is an operation. Yeah. And today is Seafair, uh, or one of the days of Seafair in Seattle. It's in the summer. So, if you hear uh, one of the Blue Angels fly by and we take a pause, that'll be what that is. So, yeah. listeners, we don't know if you'll hear the rumbling of jets. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like with all things, let's just start at the beginning. Okay. Daniel, where did you grow up and how did you find magic? Oh, man. So, I grew up in... In uh, Renton, Washington, and I don't know what time, in third grade, Ice Age was out. Uh-huh. And we're in Renton, the home of Watsi. Yes. For whatever reason, the game was huge in elementary school. Really? Right? It was gigantic. And so, all the kids played, and I only played because everyone else was playing. Mm-hmm. So, I remember riding my bike down to the local card shop. That's kind of bad, but what I would do is I would take my lunch money and I would... <laughs> I would use that to buy boosters. And then during lunch, I would just ask a lot of favors and hustle to try and make some scavenge, scavenge a lunch. Um, but essentially, I, I would probably pay for my lunch two days a week. And the rest of the time, I'd take lunch money and buy boosters with it. 
terribly irresponsible decision, <laughs> which, you know, continued into my adulthood. But um, yeah, I, and then we'd go down to the card shop, we'd pick up the cards. I didn't know what, what, what it was. I don't know, rarities. It was just really cool to open a pack and to see ridiculous cards like Pygmy Allosaurus uh, and Icy Manipulator and that kind of stuff. Like, it was just cool. And we had terrible decks. No one understood curves or anything like that. You know, we had a, a deck with 15 lands and a bunch of four plus drops, right? Um, and it was just fun. That's how I got into Magic. Everyone was playing it. So, your childhood really embodied this concept of cardboard crack to oh a new level. Oh, my God. <laughs> it started at a very young age. And it was it was cardboard crack in, the, in another sense because for a while, I couldn't make it down to uh, the card shop. And so, my friend, my best friend at the time would be like, oh, I'll go buy the shops, the cards for you because he lived near me. So, I'd give him money and he'd bring me the cards like a drug deal. And he would always bring me the boosters opened. And I'm like, why are they always open? He's like, oh, I just wanted to look. And I'm like, I understood that impulse. And then I showed another friend the boosters and he's like, oh, none of your boosters have rares in them. <laughs> this kid was buying my boosters for me and taking the rares and then giving to me my best friend. And I wasn't even mad because I didn't know the difference between a rare and uncommon at the time. So, it's kind of funny. <laughs> That's really funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, definitely you found uh, love of the game in the schoolyard. You know, it's so interesting because when you were talking about um, having this game blow up in elementary mm -hmm. school... I remember in my elementary school, there were always two kids that played magic oh, yeah. and they would be on the cement bench and they'd be kind of facing each other and they'd have these massive like 100 to 200 card decks unsleeved and they would just be spell slinging the entire recess and at the end of the recess, they would always be surefire in some huge argument over <laughs> the rules or something and uh, there would always be like a group of kids I would gather around and be like, oh snap, like circle of protection green like what are you gonna do about that and oh disenchant like stuff like that it was totally always, remember those days yeah it was just crazy it was like, a lot of fun mm -hmm. and everyone played it was like going to school and being at a magic tournament because everyone has their decks on them everyone was down to play for a break like it was kind of cool everyone had their own deck right everyone was known for their everyone weirds deck or whatever like that and they had some weird tech i remember some guy was playing like bad moon what <laughs> no no what is the black enchantment it gives all black creatures plus one plus one they had like i think it's was it is it darkest hour or was it blood bad? I think it was bad. It is moon. bad moon. It okay, is bad yeah, moon. there was like yeah. a bad moon night deck and then a crusade night deck and like everyone. Ha it was just cool. The flavor back then. Obviously, nobody was net decking. No, but. no, no one knew that wasn't a thing. We used to. So back in the day, we didn't have the internet, right? We had Scry magazine <laughs> and Duelist magazine. I remember the first time I net decked, so to speak, was when I found Blue Green Madness in a Scry magazine. Wow. I was like, oh, that deck looks cool. And this was before I really understood magic. I was just you know, swinging with Sarah Angels and like Shiv and Dragons with my friends. And so, I built that deck. You know, if you're not familiar, it has a, what is it? A Wild Mongrel, Circular Logic, a lot of Madness cards, uh, Arrogant Worm, um, that sort of thing. And there's a lot of synergy, a crazy amount of synergy in that deck. And after I built that, just out of curiosity and started playing it against my friends, I was just crushing them overwhelmingly. And I was like, oh my God, this is synergy. This is magic. And that kind of unlocked a little thing in my head. I think that was around like high school or something like that. And that's when I started to like actually understand the game on a little different level. Wow. Yeah. That's great. So, you had like a level up moment there. That was my first level up moment. Yeah. First of many. That's great. <laughs> One of my first early level up moments, there was this guy, he always played a uh, Goblin Tribal. This was back in like Urza's block or whatever. So, he had like Goblin Kings and things like that. Onslaught was, Onslaught was nuts for high school magic. <laughs> and uh, he uh, would always, you know, he would always beat everyone, you know, or he would at least always beat me and he would have like Howling Minds and he'd have like Mog Fanatic and Raging Goblin and the Goblin King and things like that. And I would have some garbage pile of green that had like no synergies. I had like an elvish archer in it that would just like tap things down. I had like one force of nature and stupid stuff like that. I had like carapace, that dumb aura that like regenerated things. Um, it was just so bad. And then like one day, I think I beat him. And I just was like, this is possible? This is, and then he got so salty and I've never like seen anyone really salty before because I always lost. So, I didn't get salty because I just lost. But right. he lost and that was the first time I saw salt. <laughs> and that was also the first time that I was like, wow, beating people that are better than me is possible with a garbage pile of cards. Man, I, we used to play at uh, 
uh, Shane's Big League in Renton. Yeah. This was before Legacy was a format, before they really had all that breakdown, before I wasn't aware of formats. They had Friday Night Magic. There's no band restricted list. They just said you can't kill people before turn four. Oh, Because people were, would bring fully built Tolarian Academy decks over there. And so, there was like a Tolarian Academy guy and there was a Squirrel Opposition guy. These are completely bro- broken, busted decks, right? And they would win everything. It was $5 entry and then you like, they pay out the top eight or whatever. And so, I would go there with a random pile of cards trying to beat these guys and they were the scariest huge nerd monsters, right? Like uh, the end game bosses of magic. And so, yeah, it, uh, be, when you beat those guys at the local shop, you feel like you really accomplished something. It's a nice feeling. Okay. So, yeah, you were playing kind of just like a lot of casual magic. When did you start to kind of organize yourself to become more of a competitive mage? So, for a long time, Legacy it wasn't didn't have any support. It was like a format in isolation, right? So, I had all the cards and that was when the duels were like 20 bucks a piece. And so, the theme of me skipping meals to pay for magic continued into like college. I would ask for my mom for like, hey, I need money for Subway and I'd go buy a dual land or something like that. Nice. You know, like a $20 dual land. That kind of stuff. Terrible. Um, but so, I had everything. I had everything you need to play every deck in Legacy because duels were only 20 bucks. It's not a big deal. But the only place to play was at this spot, um, third place books. That was the closest tournament, like physical card tournament I could go to. Uh, and then also there's like North Seattle. I didn't have a car. I was busing around all over. And then there's a spot, I think first pick games uh, down on Stoneway. So a couple places to play Legacy, but not a lot. And then of course the tournament in these days, the prizes would be nuts because blue duels are so expensive these days. But back then it was like top eight. Uh, you know, first place gets four UCs and second place gets four Volks and like they weren't that expensive. So, it wasn't a big deal. So, pe- they were like four blue duels all the way down to top eight and the last place gets like what's the weakest blue duel? I don't know, probably a Tundra or something like that at the time. Um, so, that was regular. And so, I'd go to those and there was no, I mean, there were, there were archetypes but it was all on the source. People were just kicking around deck lists with weirdos on the internet and it wasn't optimized at all. So, you had all kinds of crazy lists back then. That's so nuts. So, like, first place we get, like, four underground Cs. Yeah, regularly. <laughs> and they had they had some tournaments like that in Merkwood as well. There was this spot in uh, Arlington called Merkwood, a local um, wizarding dungeon. And a lot of a lot of tournaments like that, they have a, an annual Black, uh, Black Lotus Cup. So, it all com- accumulated to that tournament where they give away a Black Lotus, of course, and some power and stuff like that. So... We had a lot of really cool underground legacy support um, just in the Seattle area because people were were into that. And just, I don't know how that started, but that's kind of where I cut my teeth. That's amazing. Gosh, just like thinking back in the day how things were so different and just like the oh, vibe, yeah. even the accessibility of certain like like tournament structures and also the people that were getting mm-hmm. together. It just felt really nostalgic. Yeah, I mean, just based the way that the cards were priced, it could scale differently back then. I think the price of a blue duel, for whatever reason, has always been expensive relative to how much money I have. You know, as I get older and I can, you know, have a better job and more disposable income, like somehow these magic cards get more expensive. Like I've bought out and into Legacy, I think three times. Yeah, every time I come back, I'm like, oh my God, this is so expensive. I bought duels and they're $20 are expensive because I didn't, I didn't have a, you know, I didn't have a job. I was just some bum college kid. I bought duels again when they're 60 to $75. And then I find myself now buying in when they're like $200 and it's painful every single time. <laughs> that is too funny. It's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. So, when did you start playing Legacy Elves? Okay. Um, so, I think the first time I sold out... It was because of lack of tournament support. So, all we had was like a Merkwood every couple months and then maybe some first pick events. But I didn't have any friends when I played. I didn't know any people there. I was a shy weirdo, which to some degree I still am. But, you know, I've grown up a little bit. But back then I didn't have like a squad I would go to tournaments with. So, it wasn't that fun for me, actually. I'd go there. I didn't really know anyone. I was kind of a weirdo. And so, I wouldn't have a lot of fun. I think a lot of magic... It's way more fun if you have a, a, a posse to roll with and to kind of root you on and that kind of stuff. It's so much more fun. So, so I, re, I, I sold everything and kept elves because it was the most fun deck to play. I remember in high school, there was this kid who had an elf deck and he had like a well-wisher and we couldn't never beat him because none of us played removal because we didn't think that removal was any good. Anyway, so it, it was just a nostalgic fun deck. You can do a lot of cool stuff with that deck, which I hadn't really just... And it was still kind of a bad deck back then. So, I was like, it's just a fun deck to keep around. So, uh, eventually, yeah, I, I stole all my stuff and then um, I would hang out at Crossroads after work at my not great job um, and there was a little magic scene there 
And so I was like, oh, I haven't played Magic in a while. I have this elf deck. I'll just come hang out with these guys and see what's up. One of the guys there was uh, Jordan Isaka. He was there and a couple other local guys. But he was the like the grindy, kind of spikiest one there. Um, and he hadn't played in a while either. And he's like, hey, man, you got this deck. And we started hanging out and became friends. And he's like, you should come. We should go to this tournament, this big tournament and see what's up. And I had started to acquire. I had kept a few decks. I, I was really into. It's really stupid. At my first Star City event I went to, I didn't do very well. But they had these deck boxes. They had, the, you know, the cartoon mm-hmm. thing that they were promoting. They had a Goblins deck box, a Merfolk deck box, and an Elf deck box. And I was, I'm kind of Vorthosy when I play. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going to build these decks. So I built, I had Elves built and I had Goblins already built. So I put together Merfolk. So I have three tribal decks just because it's fun, because it matched the deck box. Completely stupid, but magic was cheap enough that I can get away with stuff like that uh, at that time anyway. Um, so at one point I had almost full foil versions of all those decks, completely super irresponsible, but <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> ridiculous. So I lent Jordan the Merfolk deck, um, and he borrowed that for many tournaments. And, and so we went to Merc when we both top aided playing these decks rather cold and not, not really being as familiar with tournament magic. And that kind of ignited a spark. And I think Jordan talked about this on his episode with you and that ignited a spark in us. And we just wanted to battle. We just wanted to fight people. And so. <laughs> I just wanted to fight people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we play Magic, we talk a lot of trash. Um, and I think that's part of the fun of it, you know? People are very cordial and I get that too. But if you can get some lighthearted trash talking in there or even some not so lighthearted trash talking, you know, it makes it more interesting. It gives you a storyline like, oh, this guy always beats me. I hate him. And, he, you know, there's definitely sharks in the scene, tournament scene. You're like, I never beat this guy. I need to crush him. And it's like high stakes. And that's the most fun magic. I like tense tournament magic. That is where I want to be at. So... Anyway, yeah, we just started practicing. We we would just hang out at Crossroads after work and just play for hours. And eventually, we'd trade into more decks and, and got more stuff. And we brought in some more, you know, fast forward a couple of years. And then we have like a posse of like 15 dudes with decks. And we all roll out the tournaments and try and take them down. It was, it was pretty fun. And did you find yourself playing Legacy Elves more and more? Because eventually, you wrote a primer on it. Yeah. I mean, I had access to lots of decks that I would lend out by then because I, I got back. I, I was kind of trade sharky. Uh, back in the day. Um, and you, you can get away with that back in the day before everyone had all these apps and stuff. You could memorize prices and all that kind of stuff. So, if you were on top of it and smart, you could shark your way into a big collection. Anyway, I lost track of the question. What, what was the question? <laughs> I was asking. So, you played Legacy Elves a lot and eventually oh. you even wrote a Legacy Primer on Elves that really became like the de facto guide online about Legacy Elves. Right. Um, so, the way it happened was, man, I was just playing a lot. I was just, a, I was just straight up addicted to magic. Like, I'm sure as many of us are, we just can't stop thinking about it, can't stop playing. And I just found this elf deck so fun. It's like, if you can make a glimpse combo go off, it's just very fun to manipulate the cards and draw a bunch of stuff and like to do that cleanly, you know, successfully is I think very fun. And so it was kind of addicted to that. So I would just play it a lot just because it was fun to play and not because I was like trying to be like the master of it or whatever. And then so as the deck iterated and eventually became the natural order version that people know today, um, there wasn't a proper primer out. The primer was still the glimpse version with like an Emrakul kill and all that kind of stuff. So I played way too much. I mean, I, I was legit addicted to magic. And so I took it upon myself, yeah, to write that primer, which I put a lot of uh, energy into. I haven't touched it in a couple of years. So, I mean, back back in the day, primers were like the the guide. And so I just started building one, took it upon myself to do that because I'm crazy or whatever. I'm not even sure what the motivation was at the time. Um, and so I built that and, and put that up and made some adjustments to it. And, you know, people seem to enjoy it at the time. I think primers these days have lost some value because there's so much video out there. There's so many like recorded matches and especially in the elves uh, kind of sphere, Julian puts out so much stuff. He puts, he's got some great examples of, of how to play the deck and he's got a lot of content out there around the deck. So, I don't feel a huge need to maybe make the primer modernized. And who is this guy, Julian? Oh, he's just he's just like another Elves player, a little small-time <laughs> Elves player. No, he's a, good, he's a good guy. We would go back and forth on the forums all the time and I, I took a bit of a break from Magic and I came back and he's the guy and he's got all this stuff out and he won all these tournaments and it's like really cool to watch him really go along uh, a long ways with, with that deck. That's super cool. So, I mean, yeah, whenever people online are looking to get into Legacy Elves, I know they're always finding your articles. I remember at one point I was trying to get into Elves and I found your primer and I was just like, 
what? This is crazy. This is there's so much about this, and you know, people always oh, elves are kind of dorky or whatever. That's not super powerful, but it's it's difficult to play. I mean, it's it's difficult to play well because there's so many different lines. Yeah, um, it's a hard deck to play. It's a hard deck to play, and I think it gets a bad rap because most people who play it miss a lot of stuff because there's so many there's just so many damn triggers and so many interactions and so many decisions. And then sometimes the deck is like legit bad. <laughs> like if you make a couple wrong decisions, now you're playing one ones and your opponent has a Jace and a Goyf and all this stuff and it just feels bad. So yeah, it's a hard deck to play. Every little mana counts. So sometimes I'll be playing and people will be like, why'd you make that line? And I'd be like, I don't want him to have two spell pierces. You know, like you gotta, you gotta really lock it up sometimes because they could have anything. So yeah, it's a hard deck to play. And I kind of just emptied my brain about, because I, I lost a lot with that deck. I lost a lot. I was playing it online uh, when I should be doing homework. And I was playing it like at these weekly events and stuff. And I was just grinding with my friends after after work and stuff. And, you know, I just lost, I think I've lost more with that deck than most people. So that's, that's why I, I was able to put all that detail into the primer. Um, and then most primers aren't very good. <laughs> so I was like, I'm, I got tired of reading, because I would play every deck. I would build every deck. That's when I had a big collection. Um, so I just wanted to make a primer that I would want to read. I know people get really excited when you play Legacy Elves because you did go kind of into retirement not, you know, not too long ago. But then when you came back, there was like some random Legacy Preservation Series event here in Seattle at Card Kingdom. And then you showed up and then you were like in the finals. And I think Chris Furter or Jordan Isaka, like they were just like, this is a master class. Like you um, need to be paying attention right now. And it was really awesome. I think you won that too. No, I actually lost that. Oh. I remember that one. People tend to hype me up more than more than I probably have, <laughs> have earned. Uh, that finals, I did not do well. I remember that specifically. It was versus MGK, Marlon Goldman, Cursed on a Lurin. And I definitely could have beaten him in those matches, but I just do very poorly in a top eight situation. I've, I've made, you know, it sounds like like a humble brag, but I've, been in, I've made a lot of top eights, okay? Probably more than most people, uh, at least in, at a local level. It's super hard to play tight in a top eight. You're tired. It's been a long day. A lot of your mental capacity is just locked into, oh, I made top eight. That's great. Now I'm I'm done, right? And so to play sharp throughout a top eight, I think is a different level of magic. Some players like Greg Mitchell and Jeremy Edwards, they never split in a top eight, even though, you know, they have enough cards. They don't need that store credit or whatever the prize is. Absolutely don't need it. They're only playing that way to keep themselves sharp, to keep your keep them, their mind like motivated to win. And I just, I've noticed in top eights, I kind of, it's hard for me to stay sharp in those, in those moments. I'm getting distracted off the, off the question. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Now, you mentioned some really interesting people in the local scene. Um, Martin Goldman Curse, along with like Greg Mitchell. And them. right. And who are some of your favorite people to play with? Oh, man. Um, so, I mean, of course, when we were rolling uh, deep with our East Side squad, we called ourselves the Boldware Intimidators. That was my like, core group of guys to play with back in the day. We did a lot of road trips and stuff, but... Um uh, the most fun group, the most consistent group I've been, we've had a couple four-man rides to different tournaments is me and Pat Wong, Greg Mitchell, and Jeremy Edwards. We've had some really fun road, magic road trips together. It's kind of hard to do that these days because not as many events, you know, Star City moved out. Uh, from doing tournaments, but we still have some local events to to go to, so it's it's been good. Um, but I, you know, generally, I like mo all, all the players we that play um, in the local area. There's a lot of new faces now that have come back to the game, but I think our scene's pretty strong, pretty healthy. Yeah, man, so many names, and a lot of names come will pop in and out, especially with Legacy. Vince, Vince, I don't know his last name, D last name, plays plays Bug Delver and also Slivers. Like that guy, he just has two decks he has never touched. And he just comes back. That's, what, that's what's cool about Legacy. Some dude will just have a deck sitting in a box and he'll just come back five years later with the same deck. And you're like, oh, how you been? Oh, I have a new job. I got a house. I got kids. I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. So uh, Legacy in that regard is a yeah, very long deep community in the Seattle area. Some people will come back different players, right? So like Josh Monks, for example, I play with that guy a lot. He's a great guy. Uh, he was a grinder at first pick, like one of those PTQ grinder kids. All those guys like who play on the pro tour and, you know, hardcore guys. I don't know, really like Charles Wong and those kind of guys. He was one of those guys. And then he went off to college and came back. And now he's like a legacy grinder guy and you know, a little bit of everything, right? And so uh, it's cool to be in the game long enough to watch what are legit teenagers and like boys come back and be men in this game of magic, right? It's kind of to watch your friends grow up as they're tied to the game. It's pretty cool. You know, you talked a little bit about kind of preserving legacy and that really that kind of that mindset of keeping legacy and keeping these eternal formats alive. Card Kingdom has been doing their legacy preservation series. You know, Wizards have also been releasing like Eternal Masters and they're going to be releasing Iconic Masters. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to keep an old format alive? 
Oh man. Um, so I can, I can talk to my personal experience around that. I don't, I don't have a lot of like, I I'm not a business person. I don't know. That's a big problem to solve, right? That specific problem. But I really think they did a great job with the master's sets as someone who sold out again. I sold all my cards after Star City left. And so I had to buy, buy back in at, you know, $200 duels now in the last couple of years. I'm trying to get back into it. It's expensive. And you know, I'm, I'm not broke. I'm not a rich man. I make enough money to do whatever. Uh, but magic's expensive, I think, regardless of how much money you make. And so getting back in, you know, the master's sets, I used to have, be, I used to have a lot of pimp stuff. A lot of pimp stuff. Um, if, if anyone's been playing more than five years, you've probably seen me at some of the trade tables trying to shark people for their foils and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, getting back in, I was so thankful to see all these stupid blue fetches reprinted, right? Polluted Deltas for $60, $70 for a long time. And with the, they got reprinted in cons at like $15, $12. Amazing. I'm picking those up. I don't care about Pimp Factor anymore. I just want to play the game. Uh, Jace's are 50. They used to be 150. You know, Goyf's still way too expensive, but those came down. Like, so all these staples, you know, uh, Snapcasters and all that stuff that got reprinted. If you look at my deck now, um, half of it is Eternal Masters. And I think that's awesome. I think that's great. Like, there's no reason for these cards to be so expensive that you can't play with them. I actually, you know, I used to be a huge trade shark. And now that I've kind of distanced myself from that part of the game, I actually despise the value part of the game because it makes it harder for people to play it. You know, I think Legacy is a really deep, interesting, cool format. One of the most interesting formats, punishing format, right? As Monk said on his episode with you, like, it's a tournament format. Some of the stuff that goes on there is not fun to play against. It's not for casuals to be like, let me just do this on a Sunday afternoon. No, I'm going to hurt your feelings and take your money. That's how we play. But to get into that level, man, everything's so expensive. So, with the master sets, what I've noticed is that everything's gotten cheaper except the duels, which, you know, they're doing what they can. But in a perfect world, they'd reprint those damn things and, and cut the reserve list out. But, you know, that's a bigger problem that I can wrap my head around. So we'll see what happens with that, with the iconic sets. And if they surprise us by reprinting duels, that'd be amazing. Um, who knows what happens to the format after that. But they're integrating into the Pro Tour now. And prices have already gone up a little bit in response to that. So I don't know what's going to happen. It keeps getting more and more expensive. And people keep saying, you know, how much more expensive can it get? And then it gets more expensive. So who's to say, right? Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, just kind of what you're saying about uh, it's always going up. It always seems, I mean, that's like really easy. A lot of the MTG finance guys, you know, like Rudy from Alpha Investments, he's always just like, as long as it goes up, people are making money on it. And it's always a safe investment to buy things as long as they're going up. What you said earlier about legacy being a very rich format, you know, we want to preserve it because there's such a huge card pool. You can play so many different things. And also, like you said, it's a tournament format. It's very punishing. And people learn a lot from it. Um, but yeah, it is a bummer that you just can't play Legacy because it's so expensive. And, you know, part of that is because of the reserve list, these cards being on the reserve list, and therefore wizards cannot reprint them. And I don't know, is it a legal thing? Is it a just a handshake gentleman's agreement between certain collectors that they will not reprint these? Or like, what really is that concept? Do you know? Um, I'm a, a little bit familiar with it. I, I know that there's some people have said there's been lawsuits that could happen. Some people say that it's just a gentleman's agreement kind of thing. I'm not as well informed as others, but I feel like Wadsy can do whatever they want whenever they want. You know, they're the bosses. They can break that rule if they want to. But uh, there was that Chronicles fiasco decade ago, two decades ago, whatever, where they reprinted a bunch of Legends stuff and it tanked the prices of Legends stuff. And so, a bunch of collectors got super pissed and almost quit the game. It almost killed the game. People were like, I'm not going to play this game anymore. Like, so the way Yu-Gi-Oh! will reprint Chase Rares, reprint the hell out of them, and they go down to like $2 or whatever from 100 bucks, something like that. Like, imagine if that happened all the time. I honestly think it'd be great. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think it'd be great to make tournament magic more accessible for everyone, regardless of format. But, you know, based on how Wizards monetizes themselves and all that kind of stuff, I'm not sure if it's be the best interest for them. It would definitely be in the best interest for the players. But again, we're playing, we're not playing, um, you know, some game where the pieces are interchangeable and cheap. We're not playing like Settles of Catan, right? We're playing a collectible game. There's inherent value tied to the cards. And that part of the game means a lot to other people too. Some people don't even play magic. They're just like collecting or trying to get all this pimp stuff to, to look at on their binders, you know, just straight up collecting. And I get that too. That's, that was fun for me for a while. Um, but as I get more deep into the tournament scene, you know, I just want to play and I want fresh blood to play against. Simple as that. Um, so, you know, I don't have the answers for that, but hopefully the trend of things getting more and more expensive 
kind of turns around a little bit. I know Wizards tried to alleviate this issue in Standard um, with the Masterpieces, right? And with the Mythic Rares and stuff. So you see as Mythics get printed, as Masterpieces become a thing, the set value must compensate, right? There's got to be a certain EV for box opening for the stores to, to do stuff. So you see the rare prices tank. Um, a lot of value gets tied up in Mythics and Masterpieces for boxes. So you see Standard get cheaper, but that in conjunction with people not liking the sets makes standard less appealing because well, this is uh, this is just what I've noticed as a trend and talking to other players because people like to have their cards have some kind of value you know as much as I hate paying x dollars for a dual land I still have a certain amount of pride when I pull it out when I fetch it when I play it right and it, you, you feel a certain amount of attachment to those possessions and so if I have a, a foiled out modern deck I might get upset when half the value goes away not that I was going to sell it or maybe I wasn't going to sell it but it just feels like you know someone cutting the value of your house or something like that or or telling you your car is worth half as much like you weren't going to sell it but it's like it makes it less a little less special so imagine if you had a standard deck you could buy for 30 bucks okay well now I can play but I don't know it doesn't feel as interesting right it's kind of like I imagine I, I picture my deck and I, I like foil decks I like pimp cards I like custom choices and you know customizing my sleeves and like it's your weapon right that's your sword you want to you know decorate it and put ornaments on it and that's your tool right you're I, I, I value I think of my deck as a as a tool when I go to, to battle right and so if I could you know etch my enemies names on my shoulder guard or put down you know a, a, a gilded hilt on my sword you know that's cool stuff and so you lose a little bit of that aspect of the game uh, when card pieces are worth so little and Daniel what advice do you have for players wanting to get into legacy Man, it's tough. It's tough. Right now, the deck I'm playing, I'm playing this bug deck right now, and I don't even own the blue duels. I'm borrowing those. So, I mean, I'm lucky that I've been in the game long enough to know players who have a lot of stuff, who can lend me extra stuff. Um, For a while, I was borrowing entire decks, right? And if you have access to that, do that and just enjoy the format any way you can. I know a lot of players who borrow decks, and it's great that we have a scene that facilitates that. Some parts of the country don't have a scene like that. Some parts of the country, you need to maybe make a proxy event to get players in. It is is damn expensive. Um, But for me, I picked up some Masters, the Masters pieces, Eternal Masters and Modern Masters, the Duel, not the Duels, the Fetches and all that kind of stuff, Snapcasters, staples like that. And you're just going to have to, you know, bite the bullet and play a less pimp version of a card. I know there's a lot of pimp people who say you need the oldest set foil and all that kind of stuff, which is nice. But that's, you know, I'm just trying to play the game. Like, don't, don't, uh, there's like a weird shaming if you're playing like a new border version of a card that has an old border. But, you know, let's just play the game, dude. I don't, I don't care about that anymore. Um, so, my advice is to try and pick those up. And then you really only need one duel. Of course, it helps to have more, but you need it for that first, the first few turns. After that, you can kind of get away with playing shocks. And it's really cool to see someone come into the shop and play shocks. And then a couple months later, move to full duels. You've, I see plenty of people making that conversion. It takes time because you got to hunt those deals down. You got to maybe not buy whatever dumb thing you wanted to buy. We all have dumb things we like to buy. I get it. Or make some borrows, right? So there's some budgeting involved. And there, it's a double-edged sword because that makes Legacy a more adult format. People you're playing with are a little more adult. They have grown up. They have disposable income. They are adults usually or very, very mature teenagers, right? Who've managed to fin- finagle their way into decks. And I like that aspect of Legacy. It's nice to converse with... I've never played an F&M really, but I, when I walk by, <laughs> there's a lot of young kids there. Maybe maybe I don't want to play with those that, with those opponents necessarily. And I don't mean to, to sound rude or anything like that, but it's like being around peers, you know? I'm 31. It's nice to hang with, with peers, uh, my own age and my own life status. So, I'm not sure how to answer that. It's tough because it's we're both enjoying the benefits of a more expensive hobby. And then also knowing that some of our friends who are a little bit a uh, little bit tight on the on the wallet can't can't quite play with us but there are budget decks there are budget alternatives to get in their format i've a lot of people play burn and they do well with it and then they you see them a year later come back with a new deck and so as they win stuff or put some money aside for things or make friends and borrow so i live in the seattle area i can't recommend i don't know how it works around other areas but if you have a scene just show up and play show up and ask questions maybe get a budget deck ask for borrows make some friends um, it's a community, right? So get involved with it. Uh, as I said earlier, when I played Magic alone, didn't have any friends, didn't roll with the crew. It actually sucked. <laughs> it's not not that fun to do 
uh, a social hobby alone. So yeah, make some friends. For sure. I mean, Magic is very much a community. Even when I went to uh, GP Portland last year, and that was standard, I was playing Black White Control, and I was short one Liliana the Last Hope. And like, no matter how hard I tried, there was not a way that I was going to be able to get one because they were completely sold out. They were even sold out like at the event. And so like Brad Rutherford was like, I've got one, you can borrow one. And I was like, sweet. And my other friend, Phil, he had one. He was like, you can borrow it. So that's how I got my three. And I mean, like, I really like messed some people up with those Lilianas, you know, like, yeah, we got some emblems out. <laughs> we got some zombies. So you're right. I mean, like it, it matters. It does matter a lot. And also um, just having friends. I mean, there's a difference between like dropping several, several thousand dollars. I mean, you could save up for several years, get your several thousand dollars and just go and just buy it. You know, you could just buy the cards, but there's also like a different feeling when, you know, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to like a legacy event. Does it someone have like something I could borrow? And someone's like, yeah, I've got Grixis control. You can borrow. And you're like, wow, that feeling. It almost feels more like heartfelt to go to that tournament with someone else's deck, especially like a friend that was just like, borrow this, like go. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Daniel, that's really good advice. I know legacy is hard to get into. Vintage is even harder to get into. Um, but it is a cultural phenomenon that as a Magic player, if you have the opportunity to play some legacy, do it, right? You know, there's a lot of like modern, like modern is so popular because it's like legacy light <laughs> and people yeah. love modern. It's way more accessible. But even on that like same topic, Daniel, what advice would you give to players that are wanting to get better in Magic and level up and not necessarily go to the Pro Tour, but at least get a lot more top eights on the local level under their belt. Sure. Um, man, that's tough. That's tough um, to answer. It's something I work on myself. You know, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't feel like a complete player. I don't feel like if you want to be a really good player, you should ever feel like you're done learning. You know, there's, 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 the game is hard. Magic is hard. Okay. It's also really stupid sometimes. So you have to accept, you have to know when you're losing because you made a mistake. Or when you're losing because of just straight up variance or, you know, I see a lot of players and especially when we were doing our little bold wear thing and we have new players come in and I'd watch them play or we'd go to an event and I'd watch other players. There's a certain kind of mentality that I think makes a good player. And so you'll see a, a player who might make a mistake and not want to own up to it, be kind of stubborn about it, which I get. I don't, it doesn't feel good to be wrong. It feels bad, right? But you have to look objectively at your misplays and maybe the lines you took. And it helps to talk it over with a friend, of course. So talk it over after the match once you cool off about it. Um, to say, what did you do wrong? How can you do it differently? It's as simple as that. Simple as that. I see some players, they've been playing for years and they, I try and talk to them or I see someone else talk to them about their mistakes and they kind of brush it off. Or they'll blame it on variance when maybe it wasn't variance. Maybe you definitely made a mistake. Of course, when you when you lose and you know it was variance, okay, you can eat that and swallow that. That's a little easier to digest. But definitely knowing how how you where, where you went wrong, which sometimes is hard to know, and being able to talk openly with friends about what you did, what what kind of lines you took, and to to be able to take that constructive criticism and say, okay, I messed up, shouldn't have done that. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. We, when when uh, me and my friends were doing so well at a lot of the local events with our our uh, uh, our team, we would grind games. We would grind. I don't think people practice enough in like high stakes situations. We would grind games and we'd bet cards. I'd be like, okay, whoever wins this best best of three match, you put like a twenty dollar rare on the table, and it's like, okay, we're playing for this, and we would just do that for hours, or we'd be like, who's buying dinner? Okay, I'm playing you for dinner, that kind of stuff. Not not because I need you to pay for my dinner. I don't care about your twenty dollar card. I just just need to incentivize myself to play sharper and to play with a little bit of a thump in my chest, you know, a little bit of tension. Because when you get into tournament magic and you make those winning in situations or those top eight situations, that's what you're training for, because those are tense. And you need to be a little nervous. You need to be a little mentally jarred. Maybe don't eat before you play tests. Maybe, you know, punch yourself in the face. I don't know. Get a little distressed because, um, you know, you, sh you should practice the way you play. And if you're going to practice soft and practice loose, you're going to play soft and loose and you're not going to make those critical moments. Because that's the thing that's really I love and hate about Legacy is you can win or lose a game on a single activation of a single ability. The games are so close like that. And there's such a small window of opportunity to capitalize on an error. Maybe someone forgets to fetch. I'm watching, I was watching uh, coverage of the, the matches I, I played in the 1K the other day and I made a lot of small mistakes. It's been a while since I played a blue deck. But there's a lot of small places to lose or win a match. And so you have to be sharp the whole time. You have to watch every activation. And that's what's cra crazy about Legacy is so many big turns, big matches can be decided on such a small, 
So there's so many small interactions. It's kind of a, it's kind of cool. And Daniel, what advice do you have for Magic players that are new to the game or just starting off playing this game? Oh man, um, I mean, you have to know how you want to play the game, right? And that that benchmark, that goal is going to change as you play more, as you get to know the community more. But um, you know, sometimes I'll see a casual player walk into a legacy tournament with an older deck they just picked up off the bench or wherever they found it and they'll get Seattle's the Seattle tournament seems pretty pretty intense and so they'll get trounced by these tournament diehards and so if if that's not your intention to be a tournament tryhard guy it's totally okay there's a hundred million ways to play magic so basically I'm saying like find what kind of magic you want to play and find people who play that you know some EDH players of course there's like different spectrums right there's the hardcore EDH players and the more casual Vorthosi EDH players but there's different different uh, strokes for different folks, essentially. Um, and if kitchen table magic is your thing, that's totally okay, too. There's a lot of cool kitchen table stuff you can do that's way more fun than some legacy stuff, like people going crazy about stifle, wasteland, fetchland, brainstorm interactions. Like, that's not for everybody, and that's totally okay. So, yeah, just find what you like, and you're not going to know unless you watch different kinds of magic, play different kinds of magic. But if you like magic, there's a lot of different ways to enjoy it, for sure. Okay, everyone, we're going to have more from Daniel coming right up. But first, a message from our sponsors. Daniel, you have a Patreon supporters gift for us. Could you please tell us what it is? Sure. Uh, I believe we're doing a combo signed copies of Elvish Visionary and Wirewood Symbiote, a.k.a. the Best Friends team the heart and value engine of the Elves combo deck. And if you play that deck, probably your two favorite cards. That's great. And you're going to be having signed copies of that for us? Yeah, we'll get that set up. And so if you join the Patreon, we can get a pair of those signed by yours truly, sent out to you. Um, And you can start block bouncing those all day. (laughs) Great. All right. Thank you so much, Daniel. Of course. Kitchen Table Magic is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. In the past three seasons, the show has been downloaded over 100,000 times and has reached the far corners of the world. As you know, I give out gifts, little mementos for my interviews to my Patreon supporters. If you'd like to receive signed cards and other cool things, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchentablemagic. Thank you so much. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. The Kitchen Table Magic podcast has been all about the origins of the game and members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games is so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games that allow local communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, please be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. Cardkingdom.com is a great place to shop for Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, pre-constructed decks, and gaming accessories. They have a huge selection of singles, from the latest sets to an ever-flowing supply of modern and legacy staples. Card Kingdom also loves to buy Magic cards. They'll offer you cash or in-store credit for your Magic singles. And if you're new to Magic, you'll love playing any one of the 36 new pre-constructed battle decks built by Card Kingdom. Sign up for Card Kingdom's email newsletter to receive coupon codes and deck techs by Magic Pro Chris Van Meter. You'll get access to Card Kingdom's private reserve, which are special deals for chase rares at significantly discounted prices. Card Kingdom has so much to offer, so I hope you'll check them out. And if you'd like to support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link. Just go to cardkingdom.com KTM. Okay, and we're back. Daniel, I have some rapid-fire questions for you. Are you ready? I'm not afraid. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Okay, Daniel, rapid-fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, which is your favorite color and why? Uh, I have to go, uh, actually, with of course, with green, right? Uh, It's the the best uh, history I have with the game. Um, And I just like 
man, as much as I consider myself a tournament player, I still like doing stupid Timmy things like making big creatures and drawing a bunch of cards and like accelerating into stuff. So I think I wish green was a little stronger, but uh, always rooting for it, rooting for the underdog in that regard. And so, yeah, for now, green. Very cool. And which color would you pair green with? I think green goes very well with black, both mechanically and thematically, right? You got the life and death and the growth and and rebirth and that kind of stuff and uh, super into Golgari stuff. Sweet, sweet. Awesome, awesome. Okay, question number two. Daniel, if you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? I would disassociate the collectability part of the game. If I could just snap my fingers and make cards just interchangeable the way like X-Wing pieces are, like you just go buy it and it's not a big deal, not super expensive. I don't know much about the game, so maybe I'm wrong. But I just don't like how everything's worth so much money and people can manipulate markets and change prices and the whole stock market part of Magic and the investor side of Magic, I just find kind of distasteful. It makes it harder to play. Mm, Yeah, okay. I really hear that. Daniel, question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? Wow. You mean like a attribute, a player attribute or a physical item or just anything? Anything that you want. Anything, anything. that you could give to every Magic player. Hmm. I'll just speak from personal experience and I would say maybe a little more... Um, a little more whimsy, right? Some people have a lot of that, but I play mostly tournament magic and I, you know, I consider myself a tournament player, but I like to do janky, silly things too. And, you know, it's not always about winning, although that's great. Um, but like, for example, a player like, uh, I think his name is Patrick Michael Daly locally. He's always, he's playing in t- high-end tournaments, hardcore tournaments, but he plays like wacky homebrews and crazy decks. And as much as I enjoy legacy hardcore play, I want to see some weird stuff. Bring me some weird stuff, play something crazy. Um, I totally am not one of those people who hates net deckers. I've done it plenty myself, but you know, play something spicy. Put something crazy in that list. Bring the spice. That's what I like to see. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, definitely a little bit more, uh, more flavor. Yeah, bring the flavor. Yeah, for sure. bring the cool. That's awesome. Daniel, rapid fire question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic: The Gathering? Um, that's a curious question. I, I guess I have a curious answer. I, I think that Watsi has to kind of get a little more dynamic with how they're offering their products. Of course, this is coming from non-business person. I, who's, who am I to say what the correct move is? Also, it's, it's complicated, right? It's big moves. Um, but they got to catch up, you know, um, as far as digital, the digital trends. Like Hearthstone is huge because it's so easy to watch. It's so fun to watch. It's, there's animations. It's um, relatively easy to follow. Whereas online magic, you know, Moto is not the most beautiful program. Even streaming live tournament magic, it's extremely hard for most players to tell what the hell is going on. And so, I don't know what the answer to those problems are, but if Watsi can figure it out, they can really make this game continue growing in that, in that medium. And maybe, maybe that's just the way the game is going to be. Maybe it's always going to be obtuse and hard to follow and very, you know, Dota-ish in that sense. But even Dota is huge. They have crazy tournaments and always streaming. And that's a very complicated, deep game as well. League of Legends, all those kinds of games. So, you know, maybe it's just a matter of making it more visually interesting. And you know, I don't think the issue of this game being kind of nerdy is going to be a, a barrier the way it used to be. You know, nerd culture is kind of mainstream these days and Magic's probably more popular than it's ever been. But I think there's definitely some some optimization they could do about how they make the game accessible to newer players, uh, especially when it comes to high-level magic. And last, Daniel, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Um, shoot, I don't know. You ask, these are tough questions. <laughs> I guess uh, it, lately I've been dealing with playing wholeheartedly. And what, what I mean by that is I, I actually stopped playing elves entirely. This might relate to some earlier questions because I found myself getting really tilted and taking it a little too seriously and not being as cordial with my opponents recently um, because I was playing for the wrong reasons, right? I was playing to uphold the reputation. I was playing to be the elf guy, which is, which is nice and the reason that you brought me on the podcast. But that reputation or that, that self-imposed kind of criticism makes it hard to enjoy the game. So, you know, some people get really tense in tournament magic. They get upset. They get salty. Um, what I'm saying is chill out, right? And I got to take that advice myself. So, I've kind of switched decks to get away from the kind of sports psychology aspect of playing a deck you're well known for playing. And, you know, you're going to lose sometimes and that's okay. And I, I know a lot of high-level players will kind of tie their self-worth to how well they've done in their weeklies. You know, you go, you go home after going one, three and you just feel like kind of bad 
um, which is fine. It's okay to, to lose sometimes, but I guess get get better at losing because you're not going to get good just without being being good at, at handling a loss uh, and trying to learn from it, right? That's a long way of trying to say learn from your losses. Very cool. Very cool. Daniel, I really just wanted to thank you for being here on the show today. You've uh, talked to a lot of people about keeping the dream of legacy alive. And also, thank you so much for your work in the community, you know, putting together a primer on legacy owls. Because uh, like you said, like every primer isn't always there to provide everything. And so for you to sit down and really put together something comprehensive and then also put together all those times that you have been on camera and to play legacy elves to create content to have people see how that's done. Um, thank you for being part of the community. And thank you for encouraging encouraging other players to be part of the community as well. Wow. Um, well, thank you. That's uh, quite an honor. Um, I don't know if I'm uh, living up to all those accolades, but uh, I'll take it. Um, you know, I, I just hope that can, people continue to play Magic and, and make it fun and interesting um, and build stories out of it. You know, I've got a lot of tournament stories. Some of my tournament reports, I used to write those quite often. And I think tournament Magic, especially high stakes Magic, serious Magic can create some really interesting storytelling opportunities. I hope you enjoyed hanging out with me and Daniel Wen. I've got links to Daniel's Legacy Elves Primer at kitchentablemagic.org. If you're going to GP Seattle in April, I'm sure Daniel will be there. Go say hi to him. He's super friendly and he knows a lot about Legacy. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters. Brian, Marcus, James L, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Mark, Aaron M, Neil, James G, Aaron C, Corey, Chad, Logan, The Magic Man Sam, Jesse, Ben, Nick, Eternal Dirtles, Matthias, Charlie, Geraint, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, Priscovi, Ryan, and Carl. Listeners, if you also would like to get special gifts like these signed cards from Daniel Wen, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Your financial contribution goes to making the show better and keeps it running by helping to pay for audio equipment, software, and server costs. Now that I've partnered with Card Kingdom, there's a new way to support the show. When you shop at Card Kingdom, just use my affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash KTM. A big thank you again to all of my Patreon supporters, past, present, and future. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic the Gathering community with the world. I've created a new YouTube channel called Play MTG. It's an upbeat, fast-paced YouTube channel featuring deck techs from the pros, level up advice, card discussion, MTG community news, and more. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash playmtg. And be sure to follow the show on Twitter at play underscore MTG. Be sure to subscribe to Kitchen Table Magic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at KTM Podcast. The show is on Facebook.com slash Kitchen Table Magic Podcast. All of the show notes are at kitchentablemagic.org. Remember to listen to past episodes and please share KTM with a friend. Coming up on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... For three seasons on Kitchen Table Magic, we've been talking about the people and the history of the game. In every episode, I ask my guests about their favorite color. For the next five episodes, we're going to dive into the colors of mana that make magic what it is. And of course, in Wooburg order, the next episode will be a special episode on the color white. Join me and special guests from the community as we talk about the weeniest, bored wipeiest, angeliest, goody two-shoes color, white. All on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. <laughs>